Welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you're here with me today. Yesterday, I got to spend a fun day with my oldest daughter and my in-laws. We went to the UT football game. They won, so that's always fun to go see a game when your team wins. And it was a nice little day to have a day with just my older daughter and myself. But my younger daughter has already said, now it's her turn to have her own outing. So I'll have to come up with something for her. But she's not a sports fan, so we'll see what she wants to do. Anyway, it is October 1st, so that means it is officially spooky season. I love scary movies and Halloween, but I know that some of you don't like all that kind of stuff. But all this month, all of our stories will all still be true crime. Don't worry, not paranormal. But they're all going to have a little twist in honor of the Halloween spirit. But they are all cases that I could easily do any time of the year. So don't think, like I said, no paranormal, no ghosts or goblins. I just like the vibe they have for October. So let's talk about today's episode. Odessa, Texas is part of the Permian Basin in West Texas. It is known for football and being the original inspiration for Friday Night Lights. If you know anything about Texas, you know that football is big, whether it's high school, college, or professional. Texans take their football seriously. But Odessa has a darker story lurking in its past. Rumors of a ghost named Betty haunt Odessa High School. Ask any student there and they will know what you're talking about. Supposedly, if you park your car facing towards the auditorium, flash your lights three times, and call out her name, you will be able to see her ghost walking by in the auditorium windows. For years, that was a favorite pastime for high school students. They would park and try to catch a glimpse of Betty. Eventually, the school renovated and decided that students trying to get a glimpse of Betty through the auditorium windows wasn't such a great or safe idea. So, they bricked up all the windows. That, of course, didn't stop all the rumors about Betty. Students still say that sometimes when you're in the auditorium, you can feel a presence, which, of course, must be Betty. When lights flicker, Betty is blamed. Others claim that they have seen her pacing the balcony in the theater or hearing footsteps behind them. But when they turn around, no one is there. If a book falls or objects get moved, of course it was Betty. Over the years, the story of why Betty haunts Odessa High School has changed. Some people say she hung herself in the theater on the stage. Others say she fell off a ladder and broke her neck while working on scenery for a play. There's another story that says her boyfriend shot her on stage while she was in the middle of a performance. But none of those stories is true. In fact, the real story is just as sensational or maybe more so than any of the rumors that have floated around over the years. It actually sounds like a movie plot. So let me tell you what really happened. Elizabeth Jean Betty Williams was born on August 11, 1943, and moved to Odessa, Texas from Illinois when she was 12. She was the oldest of four children. Betty's mother worked at J.C. Penney's, and her father was a carpenter. By all accounts, the family was just scraping by. Her father was very religious and talked to Betty all the time about sin and eternal damnation. He wanted Betty to be more demure and conform to the social standards of the day. But Betty wasn't interested in any of these things, and she really wasn't interested in his religion either. She loved to thumb her nose at convention and at authority. Betty was a pretty girl with sandy blonde hair and big blue eyes with a slim build. 
As far as looks go, she seemed like her typical student at Odessa High. But Betty didn't quite fit in with the other girls. She did as she pleased. Be damned what anyone else thought of her. She looked at the cashmere girls as they were called with disdain. The cashmere girls wore matching sweater sets and were part of social clubs that you had to be asked to join. They also lived in big nice houses and sat in the bleachers on Friday nights wearing their boyfriend's letter jackets. This was, of course, the ultimate status symbol at that time for a high school girl. So from everything I could read about the cashmere girls, as the students, other students like to call them, they were your quintessential it girl in high school, part of the in crowd, and probably were kind of mean girls too. All the things that you would expect from that high school clique, so to speak. It was too early in the decade for teenagers to have much of a social conscience or for it to even be cool. Flower power wouldn't become a thing until the end of the 60s when teenagers started, you know, going against social injustice and fighting against the Vietnam War. All that was still a ways off. Plus, Odessa was a very conservative town anyway. So even when the time came, no one was probably growing their hair long and putting flowers in gun barrels or anything. But Betty was ahead of her time and wasn't afraid to let people know how she felt. She loved to write letters about her thoughts and feelings and pass them out to her peers. She kind of had her own little um, blog going before blogs were even a thing. Betty thought of herself as a deep thinker. She read Jack Kerouac and listened to Lenny Bruce records. She thought of herself as an intellectual, and she loved to get a rise out of people, and she knew just how to do it. She told a friend in a letter, this is how she felt. Most people do not understand me, Betty wrote to a friend her senior year. There are people willing to be my friends, but mostly they are either too ignorant to understand why I'm like I am and consequently offer my mind no challenge, or they haven't the wits to match mine. So she didn't mince any words either. She let people know exactly what she thought about them and about their staunch beliefs. After her parents would go to bed, Betty would often sneak out of her house on Saturday nights. She liked to show up at the local hangout dressed all in black, wearing white lipstick, or in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt with no bra. That was a definite no-no at the time. Ladies didn't leave their house without their foundation garments. And here she was showing up at the local hangout in jeans, no less. Also, girls, most proper girls still weren't wearing jeans at that point, And they sure weren't leaving the house without their bras. That was not something a nice girl would do. But it didn't bother Betty what people thought of her. She also voiced her opinions on segregation. She freely told classmates that she thought that schools should be integrated. She didn't think it was fair for white students to go to one school and for the African-American students to go to school across town. And of course, in very conservative 1960s Odessa, Texas, that was a huge statement. And you got to respect Betty for speaking her mind and standing up for what she thought was correct. Betty was considered fast, and that's basically the nice way of saying that people thought she was a slut. There was, I feel like there was probably a lot of slut-shaming going on in Betty's life because she did whatever she wanted. Nice girls didn't go parking with boys unless they were their steady boyfriends. That was the only way it was considered socially acceptable was if you were with a committed boyfriend. Then 
you could park or make out and not worry about having a bad reputation. But you still had to keep it on the down low. You weren't supposed to talk about it or anything. But Betty wasn't worried about study boyfriends. If she liked a boy, she let them know about it. And she let everyone know she wasn't a prude. It was pretty often that you would see Betty going off to some secluded spot with, a, with him after he'd taken his steady girlfriend home for the night. This, of course, did not endear her to other girls. You know, Betty was doing what she pleased, but with other girls' boyfriends. Now, because of her quirks, Betty didn't fit in and was pretty much at the bottom of the social ladder at school. The one place where Betty did feel like she fit in, though, was on the stage. Betty was very involved in the drama department at her school and had held lead roles in most of the performances put on at the school throughout her high school career. She dreamed of leaving Odessa and becoming a famous actress, either on Broadway or in Hollywood. Her room was covered in posters of famous actors and actresses, but she was also realistic. She knew her money, that her parents didn't have enough money to send her away to another state to college. So she was looking at getting a part-time job and going to the local community college there in Odessa until she could save money to leave town and hopefully pursue her dreams. The summer before her senior year, Betty started dating a popular, handsome football player named Mac Herring. Now, Mac was at the top of the social ladder. He was upper middle class. He was handsome. He was tall with curly black hair. And he was a football player on the varsity football team. He did all the right things to be part of the in crowd. And Mac was not interested in rocking the boat. But he and Betty had struck up a friendship, and she believed he was different. She thought he was sensitive. She thought he was a deep thinker like her, and they didn't mind rocking the social status and dating a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. Unfortunately, Betty was wrong. She at first thought that she was going to be invited to all the parties as Mac's girlfriend. She would meet his parents, that she would become part of the in crowd. But that's not how it went down. To be honest, it sounds like Betty was the only one who really thought that they were actually dating. Mac didn't take her anywhere in public. He didn't take her out on dates. He didn't take her to parties. And she sure didn't meet his parents. He also did not give her the one thing that at that time, every high school girl wanted. His letter jacket. After all, that signified that you were his girl. Well, Betty didn't like being a secret on the side. which. I don't blame her. Who would take too kindly to this kind of treatment? So she decided she's going to teach Mac a lesson. If he wouldn't claim her publicly as his girlfriend, she didn't have to act like a girlfriend. She went out with his best friend, another popular handsome football player, and even went parking with him at the end of their date. This, of course, gave Mac an excuse to break up with her right after school started their senior year. And what do you, what do you think? He started dating a cashmere girl, you know, the proper girl, the one you take in public, but that was like a knife in Betty's heart. According to Mac, what she did hurt his feelings, and he just didn't think that they could spend time together anymore. He couldn't think of her the same as he used to. Of course, though, Mac wasn't a stand-up enough guy to tell her this to her face. Instead, he broke up with her in a note that he passed to her on the way by in the hall. What a guy. I mean, it's basically the 1960s version of a text. 
Betty's senior year was not starting off the way she had planned. In response, she wrote Mac a letter of her own to let him know how she felt. The letter read, Mac, well, I guess you accomplished what you set out to do. You hurt me more than you'll ever know. When you handed me that note this morning, you virtually changed the course of my life. I don't know what I expected the note to say, but it wasn't that. I'll not waste time saying that I didn't deserve it, because I guess I did. I've never been so hurt in my life, and I guess your note was the jolt I needed to get me back on the straight and narrow. I've done a lot of things, I know, that were bad and cheap, but I swear before God that I didn't mean them to be like that. I was just showing off. I know it's much too late with you, Mac, but I swear that another boy won't get the chance to say what you said to me. You've made me realize that instead of being smart and sophisticated like I thought, I was only being cheap and ugly and whorish. Forgive me for writing this last note, and thank you for reading it. I'll not trouble you again, and Mac, I haven't forgotten the good times we had. I really have enjoyed knowing you, and I'm awfully sorry that I had to end this way. Best of luck with your steady girlfriend, Betty. P.S. When you think of me, try to think of the good times we had and not of this. I don't know what all Mac said in that letter to make her call herself cheap and whorish when she seemed like someone with such high self-esteem to even be willing to stand out in the t- in a time period when it really wasn't cool to stand out. But I don't think he was quite the nice stand-up guy that he claimed to be if he was calling her a bunch of names. So, as far as I'm concerned, good riddance, Betty. But to add insult to injury, the school had hired a new drama teacher, and he didn't think Betty was very talented at all. And he let her know it. He wouldn't even give her a bit part in the school play. He relegated her to stage manager. Betty was beside herself. She told a friend she felt like she was in hell. The drama department was putting on the production of Winter Set, a very gloomy, dark play where Mac himself was going to be playing one of the lead roles, a remorseless, psychotic killer. Betty was depressed. She had lost the boy that she thought was the one, and now she wasn't going to get to be in one single play all year long. As far as she was concerned, life wasn't worth living. And if you are out of high school, think back to all those feelings. Everything was the end of the world. High school is hard. And so here she is. Everything's falling apart. And she's just decided there's nothing left. Of course, we all know there is life after high school and so much more great stuff to come. But at this point, poor Betty thought that there wasn't anything else. And she was miserable. On top of that, to make matters worse, her very staunchly devout father had gone through her things and found her diary. And in this diary, she had written detailed accounts about all the things that she'd been up to, including all of her dalliances with boys and all the things that she had been doing with those boys. Well, her father was pissed. And it was bad at her house. He was very upset with her. And Betty tried to convince him that she'd changed and she wasn't going to behave that way anymore. But he didn't believe her. It was all hellfire and damnation. So, things were just as bad or worse at home as they were at school. At this point, she didn't have anywhere good to go. At home, she was in trouble. 
And at school, things, well, they sucked. By winter, Betty started telling all of her friends at school that she would be better off dead. She had started saying things like, heaven must be a nice place, and had told friends that she had tried to jump off the rafters in the auditorium, but she chickened out. She also claimed that she had tried to overdose by taking aspirin, but that didn't work. One time, she even took some sleeping pills, but all that happened was she got sick. Now, Betty, of course, being a drama girl, had always been very dramatic. So when she was going around telling people all these things, that she wanted to die and that she'd already made some suicide attempts, they didn't believe her. They thought she was just being dramatic and airing out her feelings like she had done so many times before. They they blew it off, unfortunately, because that was kind of her style, was to be very dramatic, say all these big things, and then once she got out of her system, she was over it. So everyone thought that that was going to be the case this time, too. But she even started going around asking people to kill her. Since she couldn't do it herself, would they kill her and put her out of her misery? Of course, her friends said typical high school things like, sorry, not in the mood for murder today, or nope, but I'll send roses to your funeral. One kid even said, oop, I charge too much. You can't afford me. But one night after rehearsal, Mac drove Betty and another student home from play practice. In the car, she told Mac and the other boy that she was truly miserable. She asked Mac if he would kill her. She told him that she would hold, she even told him that she'd hold the gun to her head for him. All he'd have to do is pull the trigger. Mac laughed the whole thing off and acted like it was a joke, which I'm sure her classmates did think it was a joke. Most people don't go around asking to be killed. And I really don't think Betty wanted to die. I think she was miserable. I think she was going through terrible high school angst. And she was voicing all of this. But I don't really think, probably deep down, that's what she wanted. But, according to Mac, she wasn't joking. And the next day, she pulled Mac into the prop room and told him that she was ready. She was miserable. And she pleaded with him to kill her. She even went as far as writing a letter absolving him of any guilt. Saying that she had asked him to do it. And he was helping her out. So Mac agreed. That day, as she was leaving the auditorium, she told one of her friends, it was nice knowing you. Betty told several friends that Mac had agreed to be the, her killer, but no one believed her. Mac? Seriously? No way. There was no way Mac was going to kill her. That was absurd. Even when Mac went hunting, if he wounded an animal, he would track it down to put it out of its misery. He didn't like to inflict misery on things. He liked things to be peaceful. No way Mac would kill a person. On the morning of March 22nd, 1961, Betty's mother woke up and went to Betty's room to wake her up for breakfast. But she wasn't in her room. Her mother thought this was a little odd, but she thought maybe she'd gone to school early that morning. So she called the school to see if Betty was already there. But when she was told that her daughter was not at school, she became frantic. She called the Odessa Police Department and reported her daughter missing. The police went to the high school and started questioning Betty's friends about where she might be. One by one, students came in and told officers what they knew about Betty, about her life, and about other friends she had. Finally, 
a boy named Ike Nail came in and told officers that he had dropped Betty off at her house at 10 o'clock the night before after play practice. She had told him to come back in 30 minutes and she would meet him in the alley behind her house. Ike came back and Betty snuck out the back door wearing a pink pajama set and a lightweight robe, a blue and white striped one to be specific. She got in the car with Ike and they were visiting, they'd been visiting for about 30 minutes when another car pulled into the alley behind them. Betty looked out the rear window of the car and excitedly said, Oh my God, I didn't think he'd come. She recognized Max's Jeep. Earlier that evening, Ike had been one of the students that Betty had told that Mac had agreed to kill her. But he sure didn't believe her. In fact, when she jumped out of the car, he didn't try to stop her to go when she ran to go get in Mac's Jeep. I mean, she didn't no one believed that Mac was gonna shoot her. As she was getting out of the car, she turned around and said, I've got to call his bluff, even if he kills me. The next student called in was Mac Herring. Officers asked Mac if he had seen Betty the night before. Mac said yes. He had picked her up and they had spent some time together, but he had dropped her off at her house around midnight. At first, his story sounded plausible, but as police continued to question him, things weren't adding up. Mac told police he dropped Betty off in the front of her house and that he didn't wait around to see if she made it inside. Now, the officers didn't think that Betty would want to use the front door of her house if she had snuck out in the first place to get in. After all, I had already told them that she left through the back door in the alley. So if she was going to sneak back in, she sure wouldn't come in the front door. And also, surely a nice boy like Mac wouldn't just leave a girl in her robe and pajamas on her front porch at midnight without making sure she got back safely inside her house. Officers decided to take him down to the police station for further questioning. 45 minutes later, when Mac's father was allowed to come into the interrogation room with him, he broke down. He looked at his father and confessed that he had killed Betty Williams. The story that he told the officers was unbelievable. Mac told officers that he killed Betty at her own request. He shot her with a 12-gauge shotgun that she had picked out herself. He said he was only carrying out her wishes. He did what she wanted. Now, officers still weren't believing it, but Mac told them that he could show them where her body was. So, he got into the car with the officers and led them out to his father's hunting lease about 20 miles outside of town. When they got there, he directed them to drive down a little path that was barely even a road. The brush was so dense along the side that it scraped the sides of the car as they went along. Finally, after they wound down this road for another 10 minutes or so, they came to a clearing that had a small pond in it that was used for livestock to get water. The officers parked and they got out with Mac. He showed them two sets of footprints, one set larger that belonged to Mac and a smaller set that belonged to Betty. The footprints led to the edge of the pond. All along the pond, there was blood spat splattered and bits of tissue, but Betty was nowhere to be seen. When the officers asked Mac where her body was, he said he had tied 50 pounds of lead weights around her waist and drug her body out to the center of the pond, and that was where he left her. Officers still couldn't believe what they were hearing. I know I've said that multiple times, but... In everything I read, the officers must have said it multiple times because 
it kept reappearing throughout the whole account. I think they were just in shock. Mac told the whole story without any emotion. He didn't seem upset by what he had done. He used a low, monotone voice and matter-of-factly said what had happened. Now, of course, the pond was murky, so the officers asked Mac to show them where her body was located. Without saying a word, the teenager started taking his clothes off. When he was down to his underwear, he slowly walked out into the middle of the pond until he was about chest deep, and then he dove under the water, and then he came up and started walking towards the edge of the pond again. The closer he got, they could tell he was dragging something big and heavy, and then they could see the bottoms of two small feet. Mac drug Betty's body almost completely up on the shore. She was still wearing her pink shorts pajama set and her blue and white striped robe. There were two lead weights tied around her waist, just as Mac had said. She had been partially decapitated by the shotgun blast to her face. Officers asked him where her shoes were, and he told them that she had kicked them off by the side of the pond. And as he drove away, he threw them out the window on the way back to town. They found her house, sho house shoes, not even real shoes, y'all. They found her house shoes a little ways off in the brush. Mac dried off and calmly got dressed. The officers couldn't believe their eyes. Never in a million years did they think the teenager was telling the truth. Officers called for an ambulance to be sent to the scene without its lights or sirens to collect the Betty's body. Now, when an autopsy was done, it confirmed she had not, there were no other marks on her body. She had not been sexually assaulted. The only thing, it, her death was caused by a shotgun blast to the head. So it looked like Mac was telling the truth. They hadn't had a fight. They weren't not getting along. She hadn't refused his advances. He really did just shoot her because she wanted him to. On the way back to the station, Mac told the officers about what happened just 12 hours earlier. He said that he and Betty had talked several days earlier. She convinced him that she was ready. So they made their plans. They agreed to meet at midnight and that he would take her out to the hunting lease and that's where they would do it. So after play practice, Mac went home and picked up his shotgun and the weights and the rope to tie it all around her waist. He went to her house at midnight as planned and picked her up. And he said on the way out to the deer lease, she was cheerful. They talked about her friends and how happy she was going to be once she was dead. She said she was ready to see heaven. Once they got to the lease, they sat in the car and talked for another 15 to 20 minutes. He said they talked about all kinds of different things, and she was in a wonderful mood. In fact, she was cheerful. Then they got out of the Jeep and walked down to the shore by the pond. Betty was chilly, so she ran back to the Jeep to get her robe. When she came back, she took off her shoes and put them at the side of the pond. Mac told her, give me a kiss to remember you by. Betty gave him one last kiss and then got down on her knees and she said, thank you, Mac. I will always remember you for that. Then she said, now. Mac said he raised his shotgun and she held the barrel to her temple and he pulled the trigger. He said she was dead like that and he snapped his fingers for emphasis. Officer said he was so detached it didn't seem like he was even talking about shooting a person at all. When officers asked Mac why he did it, he said he felt like he had to do it. She couldn't go on living anymore, and she thought it was best, so he did it. He said after he drug her into the chest-deep water, he walked out and got dressed, walked over to his Jeep, 
and his boots were muddy, so he took them off and left them on the side of the road because he didn't want to get the inside of his car dirty. They were still sitting right there where he had left them. He then turned the Jeep on and warmed himself up for the drive home. He said then he went to school the next morning like nothing had happened. Later that evening at the jail, when they pressed him again about why he had done it and how he felt about it, Max said, I never felt worse in my life. I know she is be I know she's better off. There was a time last night when I wished I had done the same to myself. I think I'm crazy, and that's all I can say. When they kept questioning and asking for a motive, he said there wasn't one. He said he was sorry for what he had done to Betty's family and to his mother and the other people he had hurt, but he didn't feel sorry for himself. He said that if he could turn the clock back, he would not have gone through with it again. As word spread, people were in shock and couldn't believe what had happened. No one could believe that Mac had killed Betty. And of course, the press went wild. It was everywhere. Now, more details started to come out about Betty. And she was painted as the villain because of her wild ways. Remember, this is 1961 in a very conservative town. People started to say that she lured Mac in and tricked him into killing her. People said she was a master manipulator and used her feminine wiles to get what she wanted out of Mac. They were not kind about Betty. And instead of ostracizing Mac like you think you would a cold-blooded killer, he became even more popular with his peers. And during his trial, a large group of teenage girls came every day to support him. There they came in their matching sweater sets and saddle Oxfords and sat behind him on his side and the press dubbed them Max Girls. I mean, can you believe it? Can you believe letting your high school daughter go sit and support a killer? That's what gets me. Come on, people. Anyway, Max defense attorney claimed temporary insanity. This was the first time that temporary insanity had ever been used as a defense. He had Mac evaluated by a well-known psychiatrist that testified for over two hours explaining how this could be possible that usually you're sane, but you can have moments of insanity. Now, Betty had written a letter exonerating Mac of all responsibility on the night she died. They read the letter in court. It was dated March 20th, 1961. I want everyone to know that what I'm about to do in no way implicates anyone else. I say this to make sure that no blame falls on anyone other than myself. I have depressing problems that concern, for the most part, myself. I'm waging a war within myself, a war to find the true me, and I fear that I am losing the battle. So rather than admit defeat, I'm going to beat a quick retreat into the no man's land of death, as I have only the will and not the fortitude necessary. A friend of mine, seeing how great is my torment, has graciously consented to look after the details. His name is Matt Herring, and I pray that he will not have to suffer for what he is doing for my sake. I take upon myself all blame, for there it lies, on me alone, Betty Williams. They read the, quarter out, the letter out loud in court, and they let the jury know that the letter had been sent away to be analyzed to make sure that the handwriting really was Betty's, and it was. Now, even though the prosecution did a really good job at presenting their case, and Mac admitted to killing Betty in cold blood, she had already been tried in the court of public opinion. 
and people were convinced that it somehow really was her fault instead of Max that she was dead. One last letter of Betty's was read. It was a goodbye letter, and it said, To whom it may concern, the time has come to leave, and as I prepare to go, I find it difficult to write the words that will explain. I love you, Dick, for all that you have meant to me. You've been the greatest friend I could ever ask for. Here's to all the stories we never wrote. Maybe it's better that way. They'll never be exposed to the critics or to the public. I hope our story about Jerry makes it. Think of me once in a while and know that I'm glad we met. Gail, I'm sorry about Indiana, but I hope you'll understand. Here's hoping you'll always have the best because you're one of the best. I find the tears clouding my eyes as I say goodbye to those I love. May they forgive me. Mr. Herring, you're a wonderful man. So many times I've wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you. I'm sorry I have to tell you like this. Memories, so many memories to come back and cloud my mind. Memories that I'll carry through all eternity. The jury deliberated for around 12 hours, and when they returned, they found Mac not guilty. He cried in relief. It was the first time that he showed any emotion. Betty is buried in Odessa at Sunset Gardens Memorial Cemetery. To the day they died, her parents said that there was no way that she would have committed suicide. They just didn't believe it. Mac went on to college at Texas Tech, but then returned to Odessa where he lived for the rest of his life. And I don't know about y'all, but if all of that had happened to me and I had gotten away with it scot-free, I'd have gone somewhere where nobody knows me and started a whole fresh life, but not Mac. In fact, while he was at Texas Tech, he got introduced in one of his classes as the famous Matt Caring. I mean, it's weird. It's like he was a social hero. I don't know. Anyway, he was there for the rest of his life. After that, he never had any other trouble with the law. He was married and divorced twice. Over the years, he had several different jobs. He worked as a dock foreman at a chemical company, a carpenter, a welder, and then for the last 25 years of his career, he was an electrician. As people moved away from Odessa, fewer people actually knew who Matt Caring was. He faded into the background and died in 2019 at the age of 75, but no one forgot about Betty. She got the attention and stardom that she had always craved. Thank you for listening today. I hope you liked this episode. Please remember to leave a five-star review subscribe, and to tell a friend about the podcast. I'd love to hear from you guys. Thoughts about today's episode? Do you think it was, do you think Max should have been guilty? Do you think he should have been set free? He was a teenager himself. So if you'd like to reach out, you can email me at texastruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at texastruecrimepod or on Facebook at texastruecrime. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all next week. Bye.